As a parent, how would you respond when told that your young son had severe hearing loss along with other symptoms, eliminating his quality of life? Jeff Seitzer, as an older parent, became immobilized with fear, which I think is the reaction that many of us would have. He did not know if he would be able to be present because of things that were going on in his own life to help his son with his neurological problems. Jeff had to rise to the challenge and that's what this show is always all about, never giving up hope. Jeff rose to the challenge and he is going to show us how to do the same thing when we are confronted with insurmountable odds. Have you ever felt like giving up? Quitting, throwing in the towel. Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Today on Never Ever Give Up Hope, I have Jeff Seitzer. I have read his story more than once because it is a compelling story. It goes to so many different things, stamina, tenacity, overcoming extreme hurdles, all the lessons that are learned through the loss of a child, and on and on. So I am so excited to have you here today, Jeff. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. All right. Well, we are going to get right into your story. I know that you had encephalitis at the age of four and a near fatal accident at 10 years old. So run with it and share your story. Yes. When I was uh, four years old, I had a really bad case of mumps. And I recall being home from school one day and uh, I was kind of bored because television was so boring then. And so I saw a commercial on TV where Boy Scouts put a little teepee, build a teepee fire and cook some fish on it. So I went out in the yard and got a bunch of sticks and built a teepee on the gas stove and started a fire <laughs> to cook bologna. Right. And so I burned the kitchen down and almost, almost died in the fire. My oh mom my pulled me out. Word. And I remember the fireman talking to me through the door because I didn't want to catch mumps. Uh, instructing me about fire safety, et cetera. And I, I mentioned this because uh, shortly after that, I got encephalitis. The case of mumps was so bad. Oh, and dear. it kind of started me on a certain trajectory because, you know, for much of my life, I felt kind of unlucky. All sorts of things were kind of happening hmm. to me. And, uh, you know, and, and later in life, uh, after our son was born, I had a number of experiences that helped me reverse that. Uh, but let me say a few things about some of these early childhood things, because the encephalitis really upended my family. Uh, it was very, very difficult. I had all sorts of severe symptoms, like I had paralysis and slurred speech. And I had these wild mood swings. When I was in high school, I met someone who said, 
I remember you from the neighborhood because we would see you and your grandparents and neighbors or your grandparents and your parents and neighbors chasing after you across the neighborhood because I would just suddenly hop up and run out of the house and tear off uh, because my kind of brain waves would suddenly go haywire. So it was really hard on my family in that sense, but it was also super hard in that I went away to Chicago for the better part of a couple of years. I grew up in Nebraska and I spent all this time with my mom and sometimes my grandparents in Chicago getting treatment, which was super hard on my other siblings. Um, when I, my little brother came much later and uh, he tragically died a couple of years ago, rather young. And at his funeral, my older brother and sister got up and gave entirely different takes on the family. They said, you know, my older brother said, before uh, he came along, my younger brother, Chris, the family was very disciplined and they lost all their discipline. And my sister got up and said, before my little brother, Chris came, my parents were terrible parents and afterwards they became good parents. And I was stunned by this because I had a completely different take. But the fact is for each one of us, we grow up in a different family, partly because of encephalitis. Right. So they kind of grew up in a family where my parents were gone a lot and that I got a lot of attention. Uh, but for me, of course, now I look back on this and I remember it entirely differently because I had the time of my life with encephalitis. I, I don't remember the terrible symptoms and any suffering from that. What I remember is going off to Chicago and having this really exciting life and not being kind of you know, a working stiff kid, you know, most kids are kind of like in this regimentation where they, you know, they go to preschool, uh -huh, uh -huh. they go to swim lessons, et cetera. And I was like riding the train to Chicago and living in this really cool neighborhood, Lincoln Park, which is a super shishi neighborhood now, but back then it was very bohemian and, you know, the, the alleys were all brick and, and people just loved me. Like I'd go into the hospital and the doctors and nurses were so nice to me. And this was kind of unusual then because as a kid, then you were mostly invisible. You would come into the people's radar screen right. when you were being bad and you're being yelled at. But for me, I got all this great attention. Now, the thing is, when I came back to Nebraska, it was like such a rude awakening. I was just shocked. Uh, and for one thing, I didn't know how things worked. I had not been kind of, you know, socialized in an ordinary kid world. And so I'd watch people kind of like, how do they know how all this works? And one thing that was kind of kind of a side benefit of this that I only realize now is that I saw that the world was plastic, right? That, that what people thought was the normal way of doing things uh, wasn't necessarily hmm. the way that it had to be, right? And I also became very observant because I was kind of an outsider. I had to observe how things were done uh -huh. and figure out how to kind of relate to them. And on top of that, I had all of these residual effects from encephalitis. Like I had extreme nervous energy. I just shook all the time. It was really hard for me to concentrate in school. And, you know, back then you didn't have accommodations. You know, they didn't talk about ADHD. You were just told to sit still. You know? <laughs> right, exactly. You know? So it was very difficult. So I had to kind of adapt in a lot of ways um, with all of these symptoms. Um, now, you know, at the time, for example, I, I, I did adapt. And I got great friends, et cetera. Uh, and then about age 10, I had this near fatal accident where we were chasing each other around this house and the parents were there, which could only happen back then, you know, <laughs> right. back then, where your parents were gone. You would just be having the, the run of the place at 10 years old. And I was chasing this friend of mine and he, he closed a door in front of him and it was a plate glass wind had plate glass windows in it. And I put my arm right through it and pulled it back. And I was just bleeding oh, to death. Wow. You know, both my veins and arteries were severed and my nerves and tendons were severed. And at the time, I thought to myself, I did survive because uh, 
there happened to be a student nurse living in the house. And normally she was gone all day, but she came back to get a notebook and found me there bleeding to death in the bathroom. Oh and so goodness. she wrapped me up and took me to the hospital and saved my life. Now, the irony is that I look back on that and I think I, I thought at the time, God, I just have such terrible luck. First, I had encephalitis, you know, and then I get have this near fatal accident. But of course, at the same time, you could see me as lucky. You know, someone was there and they saved my life. Uh -huh, and there happened uh -huh. to be a, a pediatric neurosurgeon in Omaha giving a lecture. Because at the time, if you had this sort of injury, your hand would just be immobile. But he tried a new procedure on me and my hand is completely great. And this is kind of like wow. a theme of my life in a way that I've had all sorts of th setbacks in my life, which are, are pretty bad. But they always bring new skills and outlooks, right? And that I'm, and that I'm actually pretty lucky because of it. Uh, it took me a long time to realize this, um, but I, you know, it, it, it did finally sink in. Uh, now, a little bit later, when I was about 13, after finally kind of figuring things out and adjusting fairly well, I was diagnosed with this condition called Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease. Huh. Now, this, was, this is a neurological condition where your arms and legs degenerate, uh, which was discovered by three French guys named Chargomery tooth disease, but it's often thought to be a dental disease. Like later after huh. college, I was, I was slated to go into the Peace Corps and teach English in West Africa. And the Peace Corps, right before I was ready to leave, saw that I had Chargomery tooth disease. And they said, well, we can't send you because we don't have dental facilities yeah. in the area. Right? <laughs> Couldn't convince them that I was um, a condition that affected my feet. Now, uh, you know, the thing is at the time, uh, my parent, my mom had this condition and her really? condition was very bad. It's hereditary in my form. And my grandfather had it and he was very hobbled. So they did what they thought was right. They had me see an orthopedic guy and they put me in leg braces. Uh, huh. Now, this had a huge impact on my self-image. It was junior high, mm -hmm, which is like mm -hmm. the worst, the worst idea ever anyone ever came up with was junior high. And it was like, so I was so self-conscious and I became kind of withdrawn. I was popular before. So I got bullied a little bit. Uh, you had to find all new friends and kind of fend off bullies and other things like that. And so it was really kind of affected my self-image um, for quite a while. Um, but I, I, and that's so many twists and turns with this, with this condition. For example, uh, you know, I got out of the leg braces, ironically, because I had to go buy special shoes for them. And the 20-year-old shoe salesman said, hey, you know, you could probably get these plastic braces. You don't have to wear these things. I was like, what? Why did I learn this from a shoe salesman? What about my doctors? You know? So then I had plastic leg braces until I was about 27. And the irony is that I, I handled the hyperactivity from encephalitis through extreme physical activity. And then when I was diagnosed with CMT, I became very disciplined about physical activity. Hmm. And the great thing about this, as people know now, it's a great way to handle depression, right? Really? And anxiety. Like I had all this anxiety from encephalitis too. I was really jittery. And like, I was kind of like really, um, you know, nervous and, and, and worried about things and the physical activity helped limit that. Yeah. Uh, but the irony is I, my legs got so strong from working out so much that the plastic braces shattered and I had to go <laughs> get a, a prescription, right? I had to get a prescription for new ones. And the doctor at the University of Chicago, where I was a graduate student said, you know, you may have a very mild case, but you certainly shouldn't be wearing braces. Uh, and oh, he thought goodness. I might not even have the condition at all. And I just exploded. I mean, this poor guy, he kind of backed away from me because I was like, you mean I never should have been in braces? Because it was like half my life had yes, been in physical yes. and, and, and emotional torment. 
right? Um, now later, 15 years later, after our son was born, he was a little bit, uh, he was a little bit wobbly at a certain early point in his life. And we thought it was because he'd had some pneumonias and maybe just didn't have sea legs. But I went and got, got a new blood test and learned that I did have the condition and it was a severe form. And I, so I went to a special clinic and, and I learned so much about the condition for the first time. Uh, so many things, for example, the doctor thinks that my CMT, the particular form, uh, might've caused the encephalitis. And he said, there's only wow. about 10 known cases of this, right? Uh, so again, I'm thinking to myself, how unlucky is that? Like I have this degenerative condition mm -hmm. and it causes encephalitis that really kind of uh, upended my life in a lot of ways and made my life really difficult. But, you know, later you look back on it and you realize, actually, I was developing all of these great life skills mm -hmm. uh, because when our son was born, I was, you know, I wasn't a mean person, but, uh, you know, I was and I had a kind of a caring side, but I was so caught up in my self-care regimen right. from encephalitis and CMT that I didn't think I had no time for anyone else. Right. Yeah. Uh, I had to exercise a huge amount and I would have to I, you can do a lot of mental stimulation through studying, et cetera. Um, and I just felt like I, I couldn't fit in care for anyone else. And our, our but then our son unexpectedly was born with all of these internal organ defects. And they were very serious, like his uh, trachea was was his esophagus was attached to his trachea. Oh, so, wow. you know, stomach acid was flowing into his lungs and he was going to if they untreated, he would just die. And he also had a bunch of uh, heart defects, which were very serious, like his, his aorta was almost fused shut. So they had to do this harrowing 22-hour wow. surgery where they shut the flow of blood off to his brain for quite a while uh, in order to widen it. Um, so here we are, completely taken by surprise by this. And my wife, who'd always been kind of the responsible adult, she'd always kind of like research things and took care of things, you know, and while I went and kind of just cared for myself, she stayed back at the maternity hospital because she's so worn out from a long labor and put me in charge. And I thought, what? <laughs> You're putting me in charge? You know, because I usually wouldn't, I wouldn't quite listen to people. I'd expect her to listen and take notes and respond effectively. But here the doctors are talking to me about really serious things. And I have to listen very closely. And I also thought to myself, what is going to happen to my life? But then I had this extraordinary experience with him in the hospital where he was having this test and he was really agitated and they couldn't continue the test. And, and before they did the test, I just been, uh, he held my, my, one of my fingers in his tiny little hand and I rubbed oh. the back of his neck and I talked to him about um, this, this uh, idea in German philosophy. Cause I taught German philosophy. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, when you're really nervous, you can't think of anything else. So I'm just kind of blabbing on. Uh, but then when I left to go to the bathroom, he became very agitated. When I came back, I resumed what I was doing before and he got very calm and I was just mm. kind of astonished. And I felt like it's a, kind of a, as odd as it sounds. I felt like he was asking me to take care of him. Uh -huh. And of course, you know, uh, I thought to myself, my God. What a terrible personnel decision, right? Because I, you know, I was so used to taking care of myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I was kind of a special needs adult myself. How could I take care of a fragile little baby? Uh, but nonetheless, I gave up, you know, my teaching career and I stayed home with him. And it was like a huge spirit challenge for me uh, because I, I really had to think of his needs and put his needs before my own. And I had to learn to live entirely differently. But it helped me realize that all of these other things I'd experienced in my life before, 
that I had been kind of bitter about, they actually helped me be the ideal caregiver for him because I had learned during that time how to like manage all of these symptoms while living a full life. You know, I like did great. And, you know, I got a PhD from the University of Chicago. I stayed really fit. And I had a great social life, you know, all while I was dealing with all these other symptoms. And so I took that spirit and I applied it to his life, right? And started to live more for him than myself. And it really turned out well because we had a great time together. He had this great sense of fun despite all of his health challenges. And we just went out into the world and just really enjoyed ourselves while, you know, he, I took care of all of his um, symptoms and helped him kind of thrive. Uh, so it was really kind of a wonderful partnership and kind of put me on an entirely new track. Uh, and by age 10, but it was short, short of his 10th birthday, he was thriving and doing really well. And then on a family vacation, we were swimming in Lake Michigan and we were swept into an area of extreme turbulence oh, no. and uh, he drowned. And I was, I drowned with him. I was underwater for several minutes and somehow miraculously survived. My arms and legs were blue, which means I, I don't know, I had a huge oxygen deprivation. And yet somehow I survived. And my closing thought before, you know, I passed out, we just, I just blacked out as we were sinking was I won't be able to tell his story. Oh, and then I survived and I, I thought to myself, well, I guess that's why I wrote a memoir about our time together. Because uh, I felt I was duty bound, but it turned out be, to be a really great exercise for me because it helped me crystallize what I learned from him, and I came to realize that every single event in your life, and every person, both good and bad, has something to teach you, uh, and so it was really wonderful to, to to crystallize it in that way because lots of times you look back at your life or events and you think you kind of have a handle on what they are. But it's just really, you really haven't gotten to the to the heart of it. And so uh, it was really wonderful to not only understand what he taught me, but help me go back and, and see how lucky I was during my life, really. You know, I mean, I only had 10 years with him, but I was really lucky to have those 10 years. Exactly. And it really changed me. Yes. And it doesn't mean that after he died, that was just like all, you know, skipping down the yellow brick road. But uh, But I was kind of, you know, set again on another track and and I became deeper and, and more spiritual after that and I'm I'm really I kind of grateful for it. What um, an amazing story. <laughs> wow, I am excited that your attitude is one where you even though you were very self-absorbed and I appreciate that yeah. you shared that because I also know that uh this is part of what you had to relearn and how mm -hmm. to care for others, which you touched on a little bit. And we're going to talk, of course, more about that because that your life has changed now, obviously. Mm -hmm. So we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we want to talk about two things. First of all, we want to talk about how we learn and grow through pain because you definitely have set the platform as someone who can address that. The second thing is we're going to talk about your book. And I love the title. I just think this it's so intriguing. And it is The Fun Master, A Father's Journey of Love, Loss, and Learning to Live One Day at a Time. So we will be right back. 
Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast-paced memoir, Battered Hope. She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another. Gang raped and left for dead, loss of a child, husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering, or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never, ever give up hope. Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. It has been an incredible experience listening to Jeff's story today as he shares not only all the physical, emotional, and mental problems that he had to overcome within his own growing up years, but also what happened after he had his son and the heart-wrenching that he went through regarding this little creature that he was now responsible for and had to make decisions for and then at 10 years old he lost him so yes the emotions are running high here Jeff as you have shared your story and I really appreciate how you have put it together so beautifully so now let's continue and talk to us about what you have learned through this time of pain through this time of suffering and not only what you've learned for yourself but to help others and then of course your book you know there's so many things i've learned through my life like i would mentioned with encephalitis i had to had to adjust quite a bit and and one thing is i became very observant of how things work and this was really helpful for me when i became a parent because um just as i felt like a little bit of an outsider returning to kid life uh, after encephalitis. I was also pretty much an outsider when I took over Ethan's care. Um, first of all, I was a guy. I mean, now <laughs> many men are home with children and, you know, which is a good thing. I mean, it's a really good thing after the pandemic that more men started taking care of children and, and people had more time with their families, mm-hmm. um, at least a certain social segment. But at the time I was like the only guy in a sea of women uh, which separated me a little bit. Uh, one thing I had to to learn was uh, I had to up my emotional IQ, right? Because I started out thinking, well, you know, I'm just pretty much a colleague and my role is to kind of, you know, set up play dates, et cetera. And I had to learn how to do that in a way that didn't make the moms nervous and their spouses. Oh, of course. Uh, because oftentimes... Yeah. Yeah, like sometimes we'd be invited over and we'd have this nice time and then we'd set up another time to to uh, get together again. And then you'd see them, see the moms, and they'd be really kind of nervous and talk to, you know, they'd talk to Ethan and say to him, well, you know, uh, maybe you can come over, uh, you know, when so-and-so's dad is home or maybe when your mom mm-hmm. is there. And so they're really kind of nervous about me being around. So I had to kind of learn how to um, move through this uh, field of uneasiness uh, and make myself, you know, not threatening uh, while being very helpful at the same time, which is requires a good deal of self-effacing, really, uh, which is kind of hard for a guy. Uh, you have to be very uh, you humble, helps you learn humility. Um, and then I also, we were also a little bit of outsiders because, you know, Ethan had some health challenges, like his, his airways were kind of papery and he would have a cold and get over it very quickly, but it took him a very long time. He would have this barky cough, which could really clear a room. And he, uh, 
you know, so that made it hard to go to the usual kids sort of things for a while. So we would just kind of explore the neighborhood. We got to know all the people in the neighborhood. Like our neighborhood is full of auto repair places, which a lot of the neighbors would complain about. We're tired of all these auto repair places. (laughs) They were a godsend for us because these kind of these grizzled, seemingly hard edged guys would invite us in. They were so sweet with him. Come on in. And they'd show him, they'd hoist the cars up on the racks, you know, and it was such a wonderful experience. They were kind of my heroes in a way, because we would spend a lot of time going to these various places. And so, you know, I was observant. I had to be observant and really adaptable. And I, I learned this through my life, you know, from after encephalitis and, and after, yes. after CMT, because, you know, you have to kind of go through the world a little bit differently. And, um, and, and learning this helped me, uh, you know, build stronger relationships with people. Um, but also, um, you know, with, with him in particular, you know, I had to really, he was someone who was kind of like, um, he was a little bit of a tough nut in terms of not complaining, you know, it was kind of hard to figure out what was really affecting him. And so I had to develop my, uh, up my emotional IQ there as well uh, to discern, you know, smaller signals and, and think more deeply about, you know, how things might be affecting him. Uh, and it was really quite, uh, quite, a, quite a lesson for me. But the, one of the big things I learned from him, uh, he had kind of an instinct for connecting with people. And what he would do is he would somehow he would observe them and see the one thing that they might have in common. And he would overlook all the other kind of factor, all the other aspects of someone's character and their past behavior, for example. And he would he'd be, hmm. he'd be oh, I'm sorry. He would open himself to them and really focus on that one thing that they could develop an enthusiastic connection about. Uh, and it was kind of an extraordinary thing to watch. And I realized that I go through the world entirely differently. Like I, if I had a bad experience with someone, I would be a hyper vigilant about it. And I would try and kind of limit their impact on my life and perhaps close myself off to them. And, you know, he helped me see that I could really change that wow. outlook and start looking for things in people. The one thing that you can kind of develop an enthusiastic connection with, and it really works if you're willing to do it. But it takes a lot of courage to do that because it's natural to feel a little bit of resentment uh, toward people. And human beings have this defensive instinct, negative experiences. I teach philosophy of happiness, among other things. And you learn that the brain is hardwired to focus on these negative experiences Mm -hmm, because it's a survival technique, right? right? And he looked past that. It was almost Mm. an instinct in his case. Uh, But I realized that you know, if I worked at it, maybe it could become more of an instinct for myself. It would take a lot more effort. Um, but uh, th- these are some of the lessons that I learned uh, in my time, my time with him. How um, did you cope with his death? Oh, was guilt well, was guilt a major <laughs> part of it? Well, I did feel uh, responsible for his death. I mean, both my wife and I did because we chose. We were very careful parents. We weren't helicopter parents, uh, but we were really careful about his safety. And uh, that day we were off our game. You know, we weren't going to go swimming and friends arrived and they wanted to go swimming. And, you know, Ethan begged on bended knee to go swimming. I wasn't there at the time. Uh, So then I arrived, I was at the store picking stuff up and, you know, uh, I arrive and everybody goes into the water and, you know, he goes into the water. And so I kind of, you know, reluctantly went in him with him. We didn't have time to really talk about safety. And uh, there we were in the water and swept into this, uh, area of extreme turbulence and there were people all around us who were fine i mean it was kind of like really? a, it, 
Yeah, it felt a little personal. I actually ended the book, the first draft of the book ended with a neo-Greek tragedy (laughs) because I felt it was kind of like that. Uh, But nonetheless, we were, um, you know, responsible for him going swimming that day. And I was with him. And for three weeks after he died, I had written, I had taken Mm. a bunch of notes during our time because my my mother-in-law encouraged me to keep a journal because she thought the stories were great. And one day I would maybe publish some of them. And I decided against it because he, he didn't like to be the center of attention. He said to me huh. once, you know, some people need to be the main character, but not me. Right. So I thought, okay, uh-huh. I'm not going to write a book about him, but I took notes anyway, because it was kind of nice to remember things. And it gave me something to do with the playground uh-huh. when right. all the moms weren't making eye contact. I could just write my notebook. Uh, but nonetheless, I had all these notes, but after he died, I could not pull up one memory of our time together. Wow. Uh, other than being under the water with him. And that went on for like three weeks. And during those three weeks, it was like the telltale heart was beating, hmm. you know, cause people were comforting me saying, you know, you did everything you could to try and save him. It's not your fault. And yet I was hearing the telltale heart. <laughs> I wanted to scream, don't yeah. you know, I killed him. I yeah. thought that maybe yeah. I'd sacrificed him to save myself because how else did I survive a brave man? Uh, who had lost a child himself two years before. Uh, and he had took care of her to a great extent. She had cerebral palsy and they were very close. And uh, he had been very devastated by her passing. This was the first time that he'd been at the beach after she died. Uh, they had a house nearby. And there he is taking in the beautiful uh, scene, you know, the sun and the waves and thanking God for this beautiful day. And he sees us in trouble. And everyone else on the beach thought we were just playing, which is, I don't blame them. This is often mm-hmm, the case. Mm-hmm. I've learned about drownings quite a bit. I work on water safety now. And, you know, oftentimes people look as though they're fine and then they disappear. But he didn't think so. And he tried to find like a life ring or something and there wasn't one. So he just he grabbed a boogie board and that blew away when he got in the water. And this is a momentous thing because many bystanders die themselves who go out, try to rescue someone, really? die themselves. Wow. Uh, and so he's at great risk. He swam out and he took Ethan and tried to swim back, but he, he was taking on water and drowning himself. And all three of us went under together. Um, he found his way to the surface and got back to the shore and coughed up a bunch of water and asked the people on the beach if he'd seen, they'd seen either of us. And they said, no. And finally I emerged, you know, several minutes later, uh, so I've been underwater for a long time, but here's the, here's the interesting thing. I don't remember him at all. Really? Wow. I do not No, to this day. I don't remember him coming out there. And the thing is, I think that I was already so far gone that I, hmm. that's why I don't remember him. But the, but really what is really uh, important about his story is that his people in his prayer group told him you shouldn't go to the wake it would be inappropriate for you to go to the wake but if he hadn't uh, ethan's godmother who kind of pulled his body from the from the water she made contact with him on the beach and got in touch with him because if he i hadn't gotten to know him i probably would have committed suicide wow because i would have how could i have lived with myself without knowing his part of the story because his he he convinced me and i believe this is sincere sincere i didn't sacrifice him to save myself you know it's miraculous that i survived Uh but i went down with him we were sinking and that was it you know and uh so it's kind of almost i felt like i was divine intervention saved me um 
but I, I don't, I can't swear to that, but it's, it feels that way to a, to a degree. Now this was Lake Michigan, you said, right? Lake Michigan. Yes. And uh, is that normal? Like these kind of turbulences? Well, the Great Lakes are very dangerous um, in in contrast to the ocean. I mean, of course, the ocean, the waves are much larger. Uh, but in the Great Lakes, the waves are smaller, but they come in rapid succession. And also, okay. uh, you know, different forms of tides are working in the Great Lakes. Like Lake Michigan is unusual in that it's very long. And it's almost like a, you know, a, a rectangle, really. And it's very narrow. So way, wind comes from one direction or the other and pushes the waves across the lake in an angle. So they hit the shore and bounce back at an odd angle, which produces oh, these very dangerous yes. currents. And we were swimming at the very southern edge of Lake Michigan, where this sort of... Um, this sort of thing happens with greater frequency and ferocity. And so it, it does occur, but, you know, there's a kind of a, a certain ignorance about the Great Lakes and how dangerous they can be. And, you know, so there's a huge number of drowning. Lake, Lake Michigan is considered the most dangerous of the Great Lakes. Uh, now, my wife and I, she grew up on, the, on Lake Michigan, and I've spent, like, together we've had over 100 years on Lake Michigan. So, you know, there's a, we feel like a, not completely informed about it, <laughs> uh, which is kind of like, you know, people could say, well, what, what sort of idiots are you? And that's kind of the way we feel. Uh, but, you know, there's now an effort to, I worked on a bill to um, work, helped with some legislation to uh, have water safety in the schools of Illinois, which is a, Illinois, oh which is a great idea. Oh, yeah, because, yeah, because think how dangerous it is and people yep. just go in there. And the fact is, it's like a siren call. The waves are coming in. It's so beautiful. I mean, even today, it's hard to resist. Uh, going in and and you know you but once you're aware you can be more careful like I had a friend who um the person who this brave woman single-handedly almost single-handedly um got life rings placed upon the Chicago beaches which was a huge achievement uh because because people who you know bystanders face this terrible choice do I go in and try and save this person or do I and risk my own life right right or do I stand by helplessly and watch someone drown. She ended up watching someone drown. And for her, it's, she thought, I can't make other people face this choice. So she got the life rings put on the Chicago beaches. And wow. she looked back at it. Great. Yeah, I know. What an amazing person, you know, because I have been immobilized. Ethan died 12 years ago. And it took me almost 10 years to start working on water safety because it was just so traumatic, you know, to even think about it. Um, but she... Uh, had this video she showed me taken right before this uh, drowning occurred and she saw a gap in the waves and uh, that indicated that there might be a rip current there and it was very uh -huh. close to a pier which is like extremely dangerous they, they have structural currents along piers um, you know, right before Penelope started high school uh, she's on the rowing team now a guy who was on the rowing team a year before drowned uh, by the by a pier near our house. He was an expert swimmer, and he jumped in the water, and there was a structural current there. So there weren't any life rings. So he drowned, you know. And so these sorts of things people need to be aware of, and there's more uh, you know, efforts to raise yep, awareness. Uh, but still, there's a lot that, uh, that needs to be done, I think. Um, but I felt to get back to your original point, like I, I felt responsible. And so after meeting him, the memories came flooding back, taking care of Ethan changed my life and taking care of you and Penelope will save my life. So you tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. So she said, I want to go back to the beach and say some prayers. And I said, 
okay. I was like, what? You know, that's the last place I wanted to be because I had felt I'd never left the beach. You know, mm. my mind, the, the drowning was playing in my head, like a, on a continuous feedback loop. But after we did that, you know, it created an opening. Like we, we both turned away from anger because, you know, we only had ourselves to blame, right? We couldn't blame other people. I mean, you could say, well, why weren't there lifeguards there? You know, and why wasn't there more police protection? I mean, you could find things to, to blame people for, but the fact is we made that decision that day and it was a terrible one. And it's rarely the case that parents are punished so badly right, for a misstep. But, you know, giving up the anger, we threw ourselves into the grief and shared our grief with other people. And the kind of healing thing about that, which was so interesting, is that all, and, and this is really great for your podcast because, you know, you, you know this very well. People come kind of out of the woodwork and share their stories, you know. Yes, they've, been lived, they've been suffering in silence, right, and trying to adapt to other people because they're putting on a front for other people. They're pretending they're okay because people kind of expect this and they don't want to voice their suffering onto other people, but they know you are suffering too. So they come and share that with you. And it's really kind of eye-opening. You're like, my God, there's like a, a huge secret society of sufferers out there. Exactly. I've noticed and, that for sure. Yes, definitely. Yeah, and, and so you bond with these people and it's kind of like a huge support network where you can be yourself around them. You know, they don't, they aren't upset that you break down, you know, they don't expect you to be mm -hmm. completely together. And that really helped a lot. So we threw ourselves into, you know, helping other people who are grieving and, you know, sharing our grief. And it was, I don't know, I, 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 I hesitate to use the word healing because it sounds like, you know, a scab warms, then it heals and it's all gone because it's, it's never quite gone. You're, you're kind of disabled to a degree. Like I don't feel fully present in my life because I'm this always kind of is on my mind. I was the town crier. I would just be sobbing, you know, in public. Suddenly I'd be overcome and I just couldn't help it. I'm kind of a, I experienced the world emotionally. Whereas my wife is not a less caring person. She's a very caring person, but she experiences the world more emotionally. So she threw herself into reading. <clears throat> so it helped us get through it. And we also of course had our daughter Penelope and, you know, this was, of course, I mean, talk about a change in her field because she came as an orphan at 18 months old when kids are that stranger danger time. You know, she'd been, you know, part of time in an orphanage and then four foster families. Uh, so a lot of changes in her life. And she came here and Ethan was so instrumental in her adjusting because he loved her so much and he was so much fun. In fact, the, the title of the book, The Fun Master, is what his friends called him because he had this instinct for making every situation oh. you know, more fun. Right. Like, That's where that you know, came from. Yeah. And so he's, he was an alpha male sort of guy who would come in, come on, everyone, this is what we're doing. He'd come in and see, is this working productively? If it was, he'd go with it, you know, or he'd, he'd add an idea and start another thing. And it, it always made things more fun. And so we had a lot of friends that were really great and they welcomed her into their little society. And, and so for her, those two years were ideal. She had the, the, the platonic form of an older brother. And then suddenly one day on a family vacation, he's gone. And she got zombie parents, parents who weren't fully there. Right, but she, yes. this this little this little hellion, like she turned to my wife Janet one day. Janet was crying, and 
uh, her mom was there and her mom said to Penelope, yeah, you know, your mom's just a little sad. And, and uh, Penelope said, you know, uh, yeah, mom. Oh, no. Penelope said to grandma, mommy's crying because Ethan died, but I'm still here. You know, and what an observation. Wow. Yes. Yes. And she was excellent. right. We kind of threw ourselves into providing her the best childhood she could have. And that right. was kind of exactly. great, too. You know, but it was really hard. No you know, kidding. And yeah. this is now, now your book, The Fun Master, yeah. The Father's Journey of Love, Loss, and Learning to Live One Day at a Time. Who should buy this book? Well, there's several really uh, audiences that would really appreciate this book. Um, one is, uh, of course, parents of spe kids with special needs. Uh, definitely, because he had okay. a, a number of special needs right. that he had to work through, uh, and that, and kind of a, a wide range of them. Um, some people might be interested in because of you know neurological problems that I had, uh, which is another kind of special need group. I oh. also think it speaks to to people more generally because kind of the theme of the book is that life. You know, I'm not presented as a hero dad. I'm just kind of a regular guy trying to do my best to take care of my kid. And and I think most parents could relate to that. And even most people, because the fact is, life gives everyone a little bit more than they can handle. And, you know, and, and part of the, the theme is that if someone as flawed as me can rise to the occasion, you know, and, and help manage his life and still have fun, then, you know, others can too. But the final group, of course, are those who are grieving. You know, it's not a grief book because the like 90% of the book is Ethan's my relationship together. That's what um, I was wondering. Okay. That's yeah. What the, but it, okay. but it begins with his death and it ends with the aftermath and it ends on a high okay. note uh, after his death. So, so those groups I think would be particularly interested in it. And it's also kind of, it's, it's actually kind of a humorous book, which is a little bit surprising to people. Uh, it's self-deprecating humor. It's ironic. Uh, but it kind of helps people handle the sadder moments of the book, you know, because it's kind of like I never the character, you know, I never take myself very seriously in the book. And I think that kind of might speak to people. Um, well, you are an excellent storyteller, to say the least. I was sitting oh, on you. the edge of my seat listening as you just shared so many different aspects of well, all parts of your life. And I thank you for sharing. Yeah, I'd like to say that, you know, we're all in this together. I think everyone suffers, uh, even though you may not be aware of it mm. at first, and that we do have each other. And uh, when you open them, yourself to other people uh, and think about what you know they're going through, it really can bring us together. I think we need that a lot right now. Absolutely. Perfectly said. And again, Jeff, I thank you for being on Never Ever Give Up Hope. It was my pleasure. I was a delight speaking with you, Carol. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.